Hey everyone, this is Flippin' Finance. I'm Sam Ismore and I'm joined by my co-host Fabian. Hello, hello. Today is June 27th, 2023. And today we are covering investing in private real estate. But before that, kick the disclosure music. As always, none of this is investment advice and does not constitute an offer to buy or sell securities, nor do any of my opinions reflect those of my employer, Valeo Financial Advisors, or any of its affiliates. This is for educational purposes only. And things change, so we have no duty to go back and revise any of this information. With that out of the way, Fabian, how are you? I'm doing pretty good. I just had pizza at a place I've never had pizza at before. So there you go. Big day. Big day for you, buddy. It's a huge, huge Tuesday that I will never forget. Good. Was it life changing? It's, it, it, uh, no, but it was really good. It was a good different style of pizza. You would appreciate it because it's got your name in the pizza title. So it was Sam Silver Circle. So if we've got any Indianapolis area listeners, we, I, I had a lunch meeting at Sam Silver Circle and it was very delicious. Gotta trust it with a name like that. I agree. Uh, this this week we're building on last week's episode. So we covered a unique situation, but also some of the advantages of being in the active short-term rental property space. And personally, like I just said in the disclosure, uh, things change, but I'm also a little lazy. So I advocate for not doing that. And you had a lot of questions around not being in an active real estate slumlord, but just being a little bit lazy, but still getting the benefits of investing in real estate. Yes, uh, 100%. And this particular topic is, it's a little bit more close to home with me. I recently, you know, maybe three months ago, maybe four months ago, at some point this year, went through the process of speaking to somebody that was involved in like uh, real estate syndication, which I think is kind of adjacently similar to to what we're going to be talking about today and the you know I ran across a LinkedIn post that seemed really appealing you know they were talking about in investing in multifamily properties getting this guaranteed return and I'm like man these returns are kind of nutty and and so immediately of course I texted you or called you I don't remember which <laughs> happened first I was just like Both. hey man t- tell me about this am I stupid for not doing this uh, and that kind of opened up a can of worms and then you know, life got in the way and there was just too much unknown for me to stroke a check for whatever they wanted to get started at like their base level. Uh, so we just moved on, but it is something that I've been, you know, we've been considering. Sure. Sure. So why did you initially start looking into it? Was it just the Lincoln post? You've heard other people investing in real estate? It it's so investing in real estate is just kind of one of those things that you just hear that you feel like you need to be doing right. And I've I've said this before. We've we've kind of put enough into all of our separate buckets that this is the one bucket that we haven't really dove into that we think that we needed to. And so that combined with looking at the LinkedIn post and seeing the returns and kind of knowing the person who does this all kind of coalesce together to be like, Fabian, you need to be doing something like sure. this. Sure. Well, it's it's not a bad idea to to at least be looking at based on 
you know, all the caveats of having the liquidity and, and everything to be even thinking about doing this. But a great reason why a lot of people are, are doing it is real estate is roughly a third of the economy. If you look on, at it from a economic or GDP perspective, like housing alone is roughly 16% of the U.S. economy. So a huge part um, out there. And if you go and just buy the S&P 500, only like 3% is really real estate exposure. So you and me and I guess normies, normal people, um, and when we go and buy the S&P 500, we're really missing out on a large part of of the economic pie that's, that's out there. So, and anytime you go talk to you know, a boring financial advisor, they'll talk about the merits of diversification. Well, at a certain point, it does make sense to stop putting money into S&P 500 and start looking at other asset classes. You know, we talked about wine about a month ago. That's another asset class you can look at. The same the same reasons you'd invest in wine are similar to real estate. It's going to be diversification, different return streams, and just different return profiles that you can get involved in. But the real big difference with um, real estate is leverage. So leverage is, you're, everyone's somewhat familiar with this, but it's you put in the 20% down payment effectively and you, the leverage amplifies your return. So most most real estate deals, they were about 65% loan to value, meaning you were getting a loan for 65% and that the economic conditions have come down a little bit. So we're seeing a, like lower LTVs, so like 50%. So you got to raise even more equity. But the leverage on the real estate is a, is a really big reason why you want to be thinking about this type of return. And so can you maybe more clearly define what you mean when you say leverage? Yeah, sure. So whenever whenever you're putting your money into a private real estate deal, your equity is only, let's say, 30, 40, 50% of, of, of the project. So anything, any appreciation above that is just gravy on top of that. So you get more return um, for your buck because you're, the project is going out and raising debt. So you're amplifying your return with, with leverage. So you're, you're getting, you're only having to put down a certain amount of money. I'll give you an example. Let's just use a home, for example. Let's say it's a half million dollar home. You put down 20%, that's $100,000. Um, if the, the home doubles, you make the, the $500,000 and now your 100,000 has made 500,000. So the leverage, mm. the debt, the debt you're able by levering up and using debt, you're able to buy a bigger asset. By buying a bigger asset, you can amplify your return on it. So that's how you get these really big returns in, in real estate. But at the same time, we'll talk about later, leverage cuts both ways. Got it. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, so you, you're, you're kind of telling me why this is a good idea, but what exactly like, so I mentioned this syndicate, like real estate syndicate kind of thing, but like, sure. what, what is it exactly when you're investing in things that aren't necessarily like the short term rentals or just in investing in like, you know, yeah, sure. a, a so rental if, house? If you, if someone wants to put the effort in and do a short term rental, I, kudos to you. I'm, I'm too lazy. I like my weekends. I don't want to be somebody calling me at 8am with the dishwasher uh, on there, but the syndication is just a private, a private raising of funds mm -hmm. effectively. And there's a lot of different projects that you can go out there and buy. So 
the four that I'm familiar with and, and have experience in are multifamily, industrial, senior housing. And it used to be office. We don't do a lot of office anymore for some obvious reasons. But those are the four pillars of private real estate that are out there. Got it. And each, I'm sure, has their own advantages and disadvantages. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 100%. So going into that, so there's two things also. You can do development, which is from you know a cornfield up into a building. So that that's a little more speculative. You're, you're going in, buying the land. You've got construction risk in there, and you're getting the, the project stabilized, leased, and people in it. So that's a development of a multifamily. You can also go and do acquisition. So acquisition would be... Um, just, you know, downtown apartment for whatever reason they want to sell. It's already leased up and cash flowing. You go in there and buy that asset. So the valuations on those will be higher. So that's the pro and con of development versus acquisition. Development's going to take two to three years. The returns on it are going to be a lot better. If you go do acquisition, the the market's going to bid that up. You know, you've got a leased asset, a known quantity. Um, you're going to have to pay up for that. So you'll, but you'll have the cash flow today. Um, from in there, there's, there's the multifamily space where you can get up higher yields from it. You're talking better than bonds. So bonds right now are, you know, yielding about five, six percent. Real estate should be doing a little bit better that on on your yields. Now, not not every project is going to be yielding that. And then you've got industrial. So those are almost all uh, speculative developments. So those are going to be, you know, if, you, if you've driven up to um, Chicago and you've passed Whitestown. I live right next to Whitestown, so yeah. <laughs> I know for the listeners out there, but every time you're driving past and you see those huge industrial warehouses, those those are developments. So you can uh, a developer can go in, buy the land, put up those huge industrial uh, projects, and most of the time they actually don't have tenants ready for them. So it's speculative development. So you're oh, you're yeah. So you you'll and sometimes you do have a, a tenant in mind. But a lot of time you don't. So it's speculative development. And the returns on those can be great because you're going from literally land to hopefully a leased up um, warehouse that like Amazon, Walmart or e-commerce is using. And they're, they're paying you buku bucks for that. And then then there's senior housing. So there's a huge tailwind of of, you know, baby boomers and moving into to into homes. And generally what we're seeing, they're not all moving to Florida. A great example is that they're moving to the cities of where their kids are. So, for example, you and me, maybe we would put our kids in, a, in an Avon, or not our kids, put our parents in an Avon mm. senior housing um, unit because we don't want them to be in Florida. We want them to be close, but not too close type thing. Uh, so, you hear that, mom. You're, I'm still going to keep you far away if you're listening. And, <laughs> but the, the senior housing around like the Midwest and the, the Sun Belt isn't really built up. So, there's this huge tailwind of demand where there's just no – there's just no uh, – current structures for that right now. So that that's a big one. And then office, office is kind of on a freeze right now. Like no one's building new offices. In fact, a lot of offices are getting flipped into multifamily if the infrastructure allows for it. Um, the only offices I've really seen lately are medical offices being built up. Interesting. So I, just threw, I just threw a lot at you. What, what, what questions do you have? So yes. So the first question that comes to mind is 
like I, I just put myself in this situation. I'm like, okay, how do I invest in an industrial building, right? That's probably millions and millions of dollars. Are individual people funding these like out of their own pockets or are they pulling like, how do, how do you even get into investing into something like that? Yeah, sure. So you can, there's a, there's a couple different ways. So there's one, you can find your LinkedIn friend who's doing a syndication or, or a private deal and they, they will pull assets together. So you'll have a lot of people out there who are fundraising and yeah, you'll, you're going to be trying to build this $50 million um, real estate project. But what they've gone and done is they've raised $15 million for it. They've got the banks lining up the debt. So they cobble it together from 200 different people to get to like 15 million. And then that sponsor developer goes and does the project for you. So it's a syndication kind of one-off deals. Um, mm-hmm. There's there's some websites that you can go out and, and find on there. Like I think those are fine. Um, it's not like the best projects are coming down the pipe from those larger ones. Like, I don't want to name any names, but you can kind of figure it out. Of like you can go do uh, LP investments, so limited partnership uh, investments in those. But yeah, online is a good way to to find some of those as well. There are some reputable online ones that you can do. Got it. Yeah. Okay. And then, and then there, there's another one is I would go and find and work with a firm that does does one-off projects. So there there are some platforms that roll out single projects. Some of their minimums are pretty low um, to allow to allow people to get into those. And that way you're not having to write like a big syndication check uh, that goes into a fund or a project. You can get like one-off opportunities um, into these different projects. And that way you can build your own little diversified custom portfolios or whatever you're going to do. So if you're trying to go for uh, ultra high growth, I would do more industrial. If you are trying to build some cash flow generation, I would look for doing multifamily acquisitions or a couple multifamily developments that'll take a couple of years to, to mature and get online and stabilize. So there's a lot of things you can do with just, just a LP limited partner, uh, but uh, real estate fund investments. Interesting. And now like on a one-off thing, how much, like you, you mentioned like some low entry or lower entry mm-hmm. so that you're not stroking a big check. Like what would that kind of look like? So the, the ones that I work with are $25,000 minimum. So, you know, if you have a large brokerage, let's say you're a great saver and you've got $500,000 in your brokerage account, maybe doing a couple of those lower minimum uh, real estate projects makes a lot of sense. And then there's the online ones. You, you can do a little bit lower minimums as well. I've seen some as low as 10. I've seen some as high as 25. And I've seen any any higher ones than that as well. And when you say, say you have $500,000 in a brokerage account, is that just kind of like in different funds and money that you've already had invested that you can just move around? Yep. Yep. So I'm just throwing out. I mean, it doesn't have to be 500. You could do it lower right. if you wanted to, assuming you, you meet the accredited investor rules, which I have tattooed on me if you ask. Um <laughs> But it's just, it's everyone's like personal preference. I have some clients that are highly illiquid. I have some that have too much liquidity and they don't really care about this type of stuff. So it's, it's whatever your personal preference is. Interesting. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I'm sure I, I don't want to jump the gun on asking some of these questions. So keep going. Um, which is like how long, you know, where, where do you see the upside on this, right? Like the, the advantage of, okay, I'm going to give you $25,000. When do I realize a return or how does that return come to me mm-hmm. type of a thing? Yeah. So that, that's, that's a great question. This is where 
doing your own due diligence or having somebody like an advisor alongside you help with those due diligence, because these are, these are private investments. All of them are going to be different. So like me and you can go buy Apple stock and it's going to be the same execution, same price effectively, but us going to private real estate, we can end up with vastly different ones. So the, the devil's in the details with these and all of them are very different. And that's where, it kind of goes into who you're doing these deals with is incredibly important. So you used the word guaranteed return earlier. Uh, I would never go with anyone who's guaranteeing a return because that's that's like a red flag to me. It's very hard to guarantee a return unless mm-hmm. like something I would just that my eyes would perk up with that. Usually what you see is what's called a preferred return. Um, those can be six to eight percent and a preferred return you can think of as like a bar tab. So if you have a development project that's going to go on for two years, they, they're not going to be able to pay you money. Like the money's going into to the ground and building the structure and they're getting it stabilized, but you want to return on your money while that's going. So they'll be like, hey, we'll give you an 8% preferred return on your money. That's a bar tab. So if it takes them two years to build it, that's 8% on top of 8%. So that's 16% return to you. That's called your pref, your, your preferred return from there. And then usually there's what's called a waterfall structure behind that. A lot of them really depends. The ones I see are 70% goes to the LP, you, the person investing, and then 30% goes to the GP, general partner. This is the sponsor, the person that's putting on the investment. They can make a ton of money on just that 30%. Mm-hmm. Cuz remember leverage they're not putting they're not putting a ton of money uh, into their project. Sometimes they put a ton of money in, it kind of depends. But that 30%, they're making a huge amount of money because they haven't put a lot of money in yeah if that makes sense so then a waterfall is if they get it leased up and sold then you split the profits with your with that gp so you get your preferred return back first and then you split based on the waterfall now these, these can be really complicated and different but the ones i work with are really streamlined and cookie cutter 70 30 generally gotcha and that 16 percent that's getting paid out kind of or, or, or I'm, I'm sorry, the uh, the first one that you mentioned, the pref, pref and the yep. waterfall, you're getting paid both of those, or is it one or another? You get both, both from the okay. ones from the ones I've seen. So you can get somebody that's paying a return, return on capital. And there's a return mm-hmm. of capital. So some people will be like, yeah, we'll pay you, but it'll be a return of capital, meaning it's a return of your money. Yeah, That's that's generally not what I would advocate for because you're pretty much just getting your money back, but they're paying it to you so you can be getting your yield. But a return on capital is what you're hoping to really accomplish. So a preferred return on development, you're not really getting um, until that project is sold or stabilized uh, from there. So I'll give you I'll give you two. So let's say you they build it and get it leased up and sold. You'll mm-hmm. get your preferred return first that comes off the top. And then you split the waterfall profits from there. Let's say they get at least and they keep the asset and it's cash flowing really well. You'd get your preferred return first and then you'd split that cash flow with the GP 7030 yep. from there. Yeah. Interesting. Great question. Yeah. Okay. I like the way that sounds. Sign yeah, me up. It, Sign me up. <laughs> so, yeah, that's, that's generally how um, it works. But the thing is, like, there's tons of different, it's not, it's not standardized. Like you can have, um, like a, a 10% pref. I've, I've seen 10% pref, but no waterfall. I've seen a 14% pref, 
no waterfall. Like we'll give you 14% on your money, but you get none of the growth economics of this. We're just using you for LP equity. Um, I don't advocate for investing in those. I mean, I want the upside uh, in those, but some clients are like, oh, 14%, I'll, you know, yeah, wouldn't that still there. be wouldn't that still be a good deal to get a fourteen percent return over two years? Yeah, but it's also not compounding. Hmm. Is, is is a big thing. So for me, you're taking the real estate risk, but you're not getting compounding and or growth on it. So you're tying up your money, and you're you're taking on a lot of risk when really um, the person that's winning on that side is the person that's using your LP money. So can you look at that as like it's a guarantee? I know we're not using the word guaranteed here, but like, let's say we give you a hundred dollars and the pref is 14%, but it's just like, that's all that you're getting. So at the end of the day, when in two years, you know that you're getting back $114 and that's it. Yep. Am, am I looking depending at on the that deal. correctly? Yeah. Depending on the, the timeline and the preferred return. Yeah. That's how it's like, we get this stabilized and you get your 14%, but you know, who's making all the money on that is probably the developer sponsor, which is why kind of going into real estate is like a very gray, there's not many rules. Insider trading does not actually exist in um, real estate. Yeah. Like you could, that's a real real thing. Oh yeah. Well imagine like, um, you know, like some huge projects going in and you can buy up and do a development before that project's completed. That's like, there are no laws around like insider trading when it comes to like real estate. So like, if you know, I mean, shoot, like imagine um, who's the guy that is building the new Indy 11 stadium? Oh, is Demir? Ursel? Yeah. Imagine if you heard about that and you bought the bar across the street from that development. That's not that's not insider trading. Let's say you just went and built and you built that little bar across the street from where that new stadium is going to be. Like that's not that's not insider trading or anything like that. Or if you did Lucas Oil like 15 years ago, whenever they built that. Right. And you heard like, oh, that's going to like the, the city's built, like buying all the land here and they're building a stadium. And imagine if you just went and got a bar across the street from that. So that's like where there, there isn't really rules around that. Does that make sense? Now you're like, oh, yeah. yeah. Now I need to get on the inside. <laughs> that's, that's exactly. What I mean. But the, the other thing is like all the, all these are, they can be like a black box and very gray. That's why I think the sponsors, who you're working with, who you're giving your money to, is even more important than the project that you're going um, with. So making sure that that you're doing your research on the person, you know, what's their track record? Is is this project even in their wheelhouse? Are they stepping outside their wheelhouse? Um, I'll give you a great example. Grant Cardone. Have you heard of that guy? Unfortunately, yes. Yeah, okay. He's like he's like the great marketing real estate guy who's like uh, it's a great stick. But if you have you ever gone and looked at his funds? No, I, I I just remember that guy from car sales. Yeah, yeah. So his funds have egregious fees in them. It is egregious. Who good for Grant for pulling that off in that marketing scheme? But it's like two percent fees, two percent placement fees, fees for looking at the wrong ways, fee fee fees. You just I go to their private placement and I type in fee, and you just see like it's just like a Christmas tree just pops up. So like I'm sure they're doing great. You know, I'm sure Grant is uh, appreciating all the fees people are paying for that, but I wouldn't advocate for uh, a high investment cost vehicle like that, for example. And so why, I mean, why would people go because they just don't know any better or because they want the name recognition of a Grant Cardone? 
Yeah. I think it's both. Yeah, I think it's both. So I think people don't do the research and do it. I think you see him on some TikTok or Instagram or whatever, and it, it, it sounds like this great story. But at the same time, the person who's making out like a bandit in that is Grant. Grant and his company, they're oodles of fees. Uh, I haven't really seen the performance, but I'd be shocked if it's any good if if you have that such high barriers to entry. But it's like this great little story and people buy in and they just go, here's 50 grand, boop. Um, they make, and they make it really easy. Um, but I've never seen Grant talk about how great his returns are. Right. I, don't, I bet they're not good. Interesting. Yeah. Stay away from that guy. I mean, if you're just, if you're seeing someone like on social media talking about like this one, if you just sit back and be like, what's this person incentive? It's like, oh, it's probably to sell me real estate. And I wonder what the fees are and what the incentive structure is. Uh, most of the time it's not good. <laughs> That's why real estate is like, so people have such bad experiences sometimes because you're tying up your money for years on end. And if you pick the wrong person, you're stuck in it and there's nothing you can do. Right. So what, what other disadvantages are there, right? Like you mentioned yeah. those two there. Uh, so real estate has done fantastic since 2008. Now, like I think home prices are going to be fine. They're having a little softening right now, which is needed. But when it comes to real estate bull markets, we've been in a huge one for 15 years. So if you, if you had a pulse, which I didn't, I wasn't investing in real estate 10 years ago. But if you're, if you're in this, everyone has done phenomenally well because what happened with interest rates, they went from 5% to zero. So what happens with that is your leverage, you just kaboom, your returns look fantastic. But leverage also goes both ways. So if you've got, um, you can see right now in the commercial real estate space, specifically offices, a lot of these office buildings are having to redo their debt. And your office buildings at 50% capacity, tenants are leaving. It's a really bad time. So now you've got this really bad toxic asset that's not performing and you've got this debt. And what ends up happening is you get huge losses really quickly on a real estate project if you're in the wrong space at the wrong time. And I think that's what people forget is leverage feels so great on the way up, mm -hmm. but you can get absolutely crushed on the way down as well. That's why I talk to people is like making sure they have liquidity on the side whenever we're doing these projects. You, we are not touching these. They, they, we, we hope they do really well and meet everything that we can. But like, let's just say COVID was, was worse and office buildings got even more crushed than they did. And it, it went on for two years. Um, you know, who, who do you have the liquidity to handle that? It's kind of what I talk to clients about. Yeah. Mm. So, and the other thing on top of that is I see people put too much into private real estate or illiquid assets. And once again, I'm, I'm of the, the thinking of flexibility and re reflexivity of being able to respond to um, COVID type of events. You know, something happens every 10 years. That's out of the blue. We had 2008 and then now we have COVID. And then you have like Russian invasion. I'm sure we'll have something else in, in the 2020s where you're like, wow, I didn't see that happening. I'm glad. I had the flexibility and an ability to kind of roll with the punches in my portfolio instead of having it all tied up in illiquidity and these moonshot real estate projects. Yeah. Yeah. That could be bad. <laughs> but it's not good. <laughs> that the, could uh, be bad. Yeah. But the, there, there, are, like, there are some really good sponsors out there, so I don't want to bash everybody except for Grant. But there are some other red flags to, to look out for. There are, have you ever heard of a DST? 
The DST, that's no. Okay. So this is another thing in real estate that you'll see. It's called a deferred sales trust. It's, I'm shocked it's like still a thing going on, but it's a way to effectively not pay tax on some of your other real estate projects. So if you sell a project and you have, let's just say a hundred thousand dollars in gain, you could take that and put that in a DST and it defers the gain. It's like very gray tax law, mm. but, but the, the, you don't have a lot of flexibility in those. Once the, once the project is in place, you're in place, you, you don't, you can't do capital calls or uh, do anything like that. And then on top of that, the fees are really high. I've seen load fees as much as 10% for those. Damn. Once again, yeah. Like once again, who do you think's doing really well on those? Not you <laughs> on them. Um, I can go down a whole rabbit hole of those. Another one is, this one's going to blow your mind. Duration, duration mismatch. Have you ever heard of that? No, but okay. It sounds so, interesting. Yeah, yeah. I well, I don't know if you're joking, but like whenever I whenever I'm coaching a younger advisor on doing due diligence on deals, this is what I tell them to look out for is a duration mismatch. And duration just means the the time it takes for you to get your money back. So if you go buy a 10-year real estate project, but you need money in a year. That is a duration mismatch right there. And there's a classic example going on right now. If you Google BREIT, so that's the Blackstone Real Estate Fund. So they allowed for quarterly redemptions. So, right, you can get your money out quarterly, but they went and bought these 10-year real estate projects. What does that look like to you? A bad idea. That looks like a duration mismatch. Yes, so what happens now is all the clients are redeeming their money on a quarterly basis. Oh, snap, we own these 10-year projects. We're now having to sell these at a discount to raise money for the redemption. So a duration mismatch is just a classic way in investing that you can get blown up if you're, if you're not careful. There's so much risk in... <laughs> in things yeah. that involve money. This like is screaming to me. This is just reminding me of like what happened with Silicon Valley Bank. Duration mismatch. They had a duration mismatch. Exactly. And then the issue with the duration mismatch is you go from being at like, everything's awesome to like, oh my God, this is, <laughs> this is horrible. You know, it's, that's why it's like number one rule when you're investing in, in not liquid securities is looking for a dura uh, duration mismatch uh, on there. The other big thing is just really high fees. I, t I hit it on earlier. Just ask yourself, why is this project coming to me? Who's benefiting from it? Who's making the money on it? How do I get my money back? What are the return mechanisms on it? Those are always the biggest thing to me. And honestly, anytime somebody sends me something that um, I'm not familiar with, I go control F fees. <laughs> Like right off the bat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like, I look at it, you know, for, I'm like, oh, this, you know, this looks like everything else I've seen. And then I go control F fees. And then I'm like, oh my God, good for this person. If they can get this through that, you know, you just can do the math in your head and you're like, okay, this is, this is a $50 million project. And they're, this is a 2% annual fee. So that's, um, 2% on that is a million dollars. And then a 2% placement fee. Okay, that's another million dollars. And then, and then there's an exit fee of another 2%. So like, oh, that's like, that's $3 million that we've already done in fees. So your performance needs to get above those fees before you even see anything. 
Like that, that's not calculating your breath. That's not calculated in your waterfall. That's just like them getting their money. And you're like, Oh, that's doesn't feel good. Yeah. yeah. No, that seems terrible. Exactly. So that's why when people bring these to me, I'm just like, how much did you read into this? How, how did this get sent to you? Tell me more about why you want to do this. And usually it's just like, Oh, you know, like I was at the, country club or racetrack or wherever the hell people get these. And, and there's just not a lot of like foresight where like my, my spider senses are up every single time I get one of these. Right. 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 So I guess if you had to wrap up this conversation that we've been having in like a sentence, right. If you could summarize what people should take away from this in terms of kind of this, not alternative, but it's a different asset class, right. Or investment class. Mm-hmm. Than the what we talked about last week, how would you sum it up? I think if you have the liquidity and the desire for higher returns that are not necessarily involved with the stock market, then private real estate could make sense with you. But buyer beware. Buyer beware. That's <laughs> yeah. That's it's probably a good place to end it. If you have any burning questions, I do have one question. Uh oh. So I saw this come through kind of a couple different uh, places online. And it, w- it was just talking about like Eli Lilly share- shares raising to like the highest that they've ever, or maybe the 52 week high or something like that. Sure. Following the news of like some new drug. So yeah. when, when something like that happens, do you have a window of opportunity to like make money? Or is that just like a fool's errand? Like, let's say mm-hmm. you saw the research that they were coming out with this kind of competitor to Ozempic because that's what this, you know, yeah. article is referencing. Wugovi um, is what they're talking about. Yeah. And it, it hits this 52 week high, but then immediately like a day after it drops back down and then it's like 1% over where they were. Like, is there a window of opportunity there for someone to just be like, Ooh, let's buy some Eli Lilly stock. So taking a step back from Eli Lilly, I'm not going to really comment on individual stock of like, if it's a good time to buy Lily or not, that's for other people to figure out. But I do generally think that the market is slower to pick up on this stuff than you would think. Everyone thinks that markets are perfectly efficient, but I don't know, like it, it just seems like with some of these companies that you hear about, and if you think it's doing really well, it might be, not be a bad like if, if you feel like you're early sometimes a lot of the it takes a while for the information to be disseminated out so i'm not really answering your question on lily but i do think there is something whenever you see something hitting up an all-time high i'm more of a momentum person i want to be buying things that are doing well that means right. things that are hitting the 52 week high so i'm not trying to buy th- i'm not trying to go go buy regional bank stocks after they tanked I want to be buying things that are working well and are continuing to work well. That is what you would call momentum. So whenever you see good news, I don't necessarily think that you want to be selling, but it raises my eyes like, well, maybe maybe there's a long-term opportunity here uh, that the market hasn't appreciated yet. Yeah. And I'm looking at it now like Lily's continues to just grind higher. Yeah. My God, it's up 40%. (laughs) That's um, a lot of percent. That's a good. That's a good percent. That's a good percent. Yeah, I called it. I called it. I called it a week after that. Um, Dang. 
Yeah. Any other any other burning questions for you? That that was it. That's what I had in my mind today. Okay. And then building on the real estate next week, we're going to cover qualified opportunity zones. Oh that's, man, that's my favorite. Those are my favorite type of zones. Stop it! Don't lie. Qualified to me. opportunities, quasis. Don't don't lie to me like that. <laughs> but I think that it, it's it, combining with real estate and taxes. It's a it's a fantastic strategy to take advantage of. Well, I'm so excited. That, to learn. Yes, oh. excited. So with that, um, feel free to reach out to us if you have questions on real estate. Send them to Fabian. Um, maybe. <laughs> He's an expert now. Yeah. Um, but subscribe, share, and rate the podcast. And we're always taking questions. So appreciate it. Bye.